Okay, so you know those times when you meet someone and almost immediately you feel at home? I live for those moments. Hello, lovely people. It is Shara Carruthers here, and I sincerely hope that you are doing well out there. I also hope that you're having the great fortune to connect with folks who are as cool as our guest on the show today. So I originally met Meadow Hesselink back in 2011 when I was living in Ohio, and we both attended a week-long Anasara intensive with John Friend before the whole Anasara thing blew up. And even though we only really met in passing, she left an impression on me. And now all of that was before Meadow started podcasting and before she started working with yoga teachers, which is what she does now. She works with teachers to help them get their heads and their hearts around things like business and marketing and productivity so that they can make a bigger impact with their teaching. Meadow is, she's a mama too. She's a wife and a yoga teacher and she's a mentor for yoga teachers and she has a wealth of knowledge and experience and worldly wisdom about what it takes to live your yoga while making a living from it. She is the host of the Yoga Teachers Resource Podcast and its sister Facebook community. And I've been a member of the Facebook community for a while. And over the time, I've actually seen the community grow and I've seen Mado grow along with it quite a bit. Most recently, I was nearly brought to tears during a challenge that Mado set for herself to share a live video in the group every day for a month. And so every day for a month, she invited us into her sunny room with the yoga mats and the workout equipment. And over her morning coffee, she shared what was on her mind and in her heart. No holds barred. And maybe it's because of that, that the conversation Maria and I had with her felt like one that had been started years ago. So why not have a listen and maybe you'll feel like that too. Y'all ready? We're ready. We're ready. We are going. Well, it's morning here in Australia, early morning, and it is afternoon in Asheville, North Carolina, and we are very, very excited today to be talking with Mado Hesselink, and I will talk all about her in the intro, so we're just going to dive in. There's so many things that we could talk about with Mado because she's got lots going on in her life, but, you know, I think it'd be really good to start with understanding, even just for a couple of minutes, understanding where yoga started for you. Mm, Great. Yeah, I really, I'm really keen to understand that because, yeah, anyway, I'll let you talk. I'll let you talk. Okay, set the scene. Cedar Falls, Iowa. Well, I'm trying to figure out how far to go back. Okay, my very first exposure to yoga. I never did any yoga, but I was a teenager and I actually folded envelopes and stuffed envelopes for a yoga studio whose, it was the first yoga studio in Asheville, North Carolina. I was a teenager. I was like 16 or 17. And the woman who owned the studio is now, you know, she's been teaching for like 35 years and she's now a good friend of mine. 
But at that time, I didn't actually do yoga. But that was my very first exposure, like this is a thing. My first practice of yoga was in college. And the first thing I actually got into was martial arts. There was a, I was a theater major. And a lot of the upperclassmen and some of the professors were in this martial arts dojo. And it was very compelling and I joined it and it was very intense. Like it was culture, like it was an intense, I don't want to call it cult, but there were some intense dynamics. Okay. (laughs) And there was even some hazing, like Mm -hmm. you had to prove yourself Mm. as serious. And so during that same time, I was in the theater program and I was introduced to yoga through the theater program and it felt yoga felt like this refuge, Mm -hmm. right? So the martial arts was this introduction to intense physicality. And for me, the yoga was like the balance to that. So that was my first introduction to yoga. And when I graduated from college and I came back to Asheville, so that was in Iowa, I came back to Asheville and I almost immediately got pregnant. And I was at that time still practicing martial arts and yoga. And when I got pregnant, I was in a yoga teacher training. And I basically, after I had my daughter, felt like I had to choose. Like I didn't have time to pursue martial arts and yoga. Mm -hmm. And because of that feeling that yoga was a safe space, Mm -hmm. that was the choice I made. So, So that was how I got into yoga. So that was probably right around the turn of the millennium, somewhere in the late 1990s slash early 2000s. And what was this yoga practice that you were doing? I mean, even then there were lots of different styles and schools and ways of practicing. What was that all about? Well, honestly, what my theater teachers taught me, I don't even know what that was. (laughs) You know, it was Hatha yoga, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... When I came back to Asheville, I was introduced more to vinyasa flow, that type of style. But I also practiced Iyengar. Uh, One of my teachers was Shivananda. There, it was, it was a. I think even I think back then, in that specific time period, was the time period where Mishmashi started. Mm -hmm. Don't don't you guys think? Yeah. Where it, it we were leaving the guru sort of system and moving into more of an interdisciplinary system. Yeah, it was definitely the beginnings of that. And so at what point did you start to teach? Or were you teaching then? I started to teach when my daughter was about two years old. So in 2000 and she was born in 02. So 04, 05, that's when I started to teach. And I, I taught at a YMCA. That was my first job. Yeah. And at that time, because I live in a very progressive city, yeah. yoga was really exploding and the YMCA was the affordable place to get yoga. Mm-hmm. So my classes almost immediately were 20 to 50, occasionally even like 70 people. So I had these really big classes right away. Mm-hmm. And I consider that to be my second teacher training where I learned so much from the practice of teaching these really big groups. Yeah. 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 It was, it was, it was a blessing. And one of the things that I did was 
right around the time that I started teaching, I got into Anusara, which is how Shara and I know each other. And so it was important to me to bring the philosophy of yoga into my classroom pretty much from the get go. Mm -hmm. And you would think, or maybe there would be an assumption that at the Y that that wouldn't float or fly. But because like I said, of the city that I live in, that actually made my classes more popular. People loved it. Mm. Wow. And so how long did you, and so is that pretty much still the kind of teaching that you do now or has that, has your teaching changed or have you started to incorporate other things into it? Biomechanically, I don't, teach Anusara much like I'm glad I learned those principles but they're a very simplified version of looking at the human body they're a simplified system which was really helpful at a certain stage and but when I started to learn anatomy that blew my mind and and kind of blew me open to the complexity of you know the physical practice and how it's much more nuanced Mm -hmm. than the, the principles of Anusara. So, and, and I would say too that Anusara as a system was so regimented, even though yes, there were, there was freedom within it, but it felt like there was a really big push to almost become somebody else. And so, at, you know, to, to teach in this very specific way that had, you have to check this box, this box, this box, this box. I mean, there was a lot of expectations in that system. And so I would say that in 2012, when everything exploded, um, it was right around the time that I was really intensively studying anatomy. Mm-hmm. And so what happened to me was this breaking free of like, okay, I've, I had this structure that taught me a lot by trying to fit myself in the structure. And then it was this amazing opportunity to say, I'm going to throw the structure out the window for a while and see what really resonates for me, what really works for me. So I would say that my, my teaching is influenced by Anusara because that is a part of my background. But if you would come to my class, you wouldn't necessarily peg it as an Anusara class. You wouldn't necessarily see that in my background, if that makes sense. It's it's very much, it's become more about my own personal practice and whatever is alive for me, because that to me is one of the bonus, you know, core benefits of being a yoga teacher is being able to use your classes almost as a laboratory to try out what you're working on personally. Yeah, I so, so agree with that. And how you went about learning anatomy, because there you can go intensive, you can go the slow drip feed, which was how I kind of did it. Um, and I and I was also influenced by Judith Lassiter so much. I don't know if you ever got any anatomy from her, but um, how did you learn your anatomy? That's such a great question. That's uh, another fun story. I signed up for a intensive with Jill Miller, and it was kind of a coincidence where I was just researching her. I heard her on a podcast. I was like, I like what this woman has to say. I wonder when her next training is. And it happened to be 10 minutes is in Los Angeles, 10 minutes from the house of one of my best friends who happened to be in that martial arts dojo with me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Ooh, this is, this is too good. <laughs> I got to do this because I mean, nothing in LA is 10 minutes from anything else. That's right? true. 
So then it turned out that my friend was even going to be out of town, but I just, I was just staying in her apartment by myself, which was such a good thing because I had no idea what I was getting into. It was an incredibly intense training where it's like, not only was it like eight or 10 hour days, but then there was another three or four hours of homework each night. And I would, it would have been really hard if my friend was there expecting to socialize. So it just, it was kind of this perfect storm. And that was my introduction to anatomy. But what what Jill does really, really well is give you the the tools, kind of the the key is is how I call it. Like once you have the key to the code, the anatomy code, then you can figure things out by yourself. So she teaches the basics really, really well so that you are empowered then to go and keep studying on your own. So yes, of course, it ends up being a drip in the long run, because how can it not be? There's just an unending amount of things to learn. Like you'll never learn it all, which is part of the fun of it. Mm, it is. And and have you stuck with anatomy or has that changed again? Because I also found I did a blast of anatomy, lots and lots, tons, and still teach it. But then suddenly the physical, I was like, okay, now I want to go kind of the pranic or whatever. I don't know how that's evolved for you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it goes in phases. Mm. Like if I'm asked to teach anatomy, like in a teacher training, then I'll kind of dive back into it and and I'll have forgotten a lot. (laughs) The other thing that I did is I enrolled in a academic, um, in an anatomy course at the community college Mm -hmm. so that I was able to get kind of that angle and that perspective on it, which is really interesting because they had very little about the musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal anatomy. Like most of it was other things, but I got like my mind blown open by the nervous system (laughs) and things like that. So it was really great to get a little bit of a, a broader overview of anatomy outside of the context of asana and the Mm -hmm. yoga industry. Mm -hmm. And I, this has been one of my key techniques for really engaging in material within the yoga industry is to go outside the yoga industry and say, okay, here's a topic that I'm interested in. There's the kind of the same echo chamber inside the yoga industry. How can I step outside of the yoga industry and outside of the yoga world and see what other people are saying? So it would be the same thing with movement. Like I'm really interested in learning from Pilates teachers and I I've done CrossFit for 10 years and I did some aerial silks and, you know, it's my intention to, I've done some dance. I'd love to get back into it, but I'm always interested in bringing in and seeing angles and perspectives from outside of my own bubble. Nice. Yeah. I'm interested in, in to know how, <clears throat> excuse me, how your, uh, your study and your understanding of anatomy has changed your practice or changed, well, not only not only your personal practice, but also your teaching. How has it influenced it? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, in the most simplistic way, just the understanding of the individuality of the human body and how different people need different things. And you can't, first of all, you're not no one practice is going to really be appropriate for everybody who shows up to it. Mm -hmm. And I would say one of the biggest things is teaching in with options Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, because of also a desire to be inclusive, 
the way, you know, developing the skill to offer those options in a way where it feels like a menu and it empowers people to, to try things out and feel, Mm -hmm. okay, this feels like the right amount of challenge for me today without labeling it more advanced, less advanced, Mm -hmm. you know, like a progress, a progression. uh, What was that? Degustation style. Yeah. Taster. Yeah, 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 Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that I'm really interested in. And I've been kind of exploring because coming from this, this Ayurvedic background, it, I immediately am looking at a group yoga class and going, this is, this is screwing lots of people up in here. Like we need to figure out how to, you know, how to, and I love, and I, Jay Brown and Judith Lasseter were talking about this idea of like giving back the gold. And so this idea that, you know, students are, you know, in, the idea of a, t- of a yoga teacher empowering their students to take the practice back. And I know that there's lots of teachers even out there. Like I, I even think about sometimes when I go to a group class where I kind of tune out a little and, you know, just go along. And I'm really playing with this idea of the nuances of trying to empower students to really own their practice. And so I wonder, like, what are your thoughts about that? And what, you know, you've al- you already mentioned this idea of menu, um, but what other things are you thinking about or doing in terms of being able to empower your students to own their own practice? Well, I think the biggest thing we can do as teachers is to be the example of that and yeah. own our own practice, which is what you guys talk about, really, and, and live it out in the world. And it's like, it's this interesting juxtaposition because I do believe that living your practice off your mat and when you're not teaching will feed into your ability to present that when you are teaching so that even though you might have you're going to have lots of different people coming in with lots of different agendas and one of the stories one of the things that i've been very interested to hear i've talked to yoga students who say i like going into class and shutting off my brain and just doing what i'm told i like that yeah and so that's really interesting to me that there's been a conversation recently around somatic dominance and how that's led to some of the abuses in the yoga world. But people apparently are craving somatic dominance. Like they want to be somatically dominated, which I don't know if that kind of leads back to childhood patterns or like where that comes from. <laughs> but I'm really curious about it. What do you think, Maria? I think it works really differently because I recently, um, I, I, I thought I was sick just as the COVID thing went down. And I have a really strong home practice, but was panicky a little bit, like a little bit jittery and a little bit unsettled and a little bit in pain. And what I really needed was to access via Zoom. So thank goodness I could access these teachers that I had worked with and I had solid relationships with. So they didn't feel dominant because I loved them and trusted them. But dropping into their voice was, I think, your social engagement system, more that polyvagal kind of social engagement system. Mm. It really invoked this trusting relationship and that it's almost like mama. And then mm. you you get safe with them. And then eventually you're like, okay, you kind of come out of the beginning of class and you're like, okay, now actually I wanted to do a twist. <laughs> you're in your teenage stage by the end of class, but you're, you're a babe. And it felt so comforting. I could feel my body relax. And it, I think it depends on being on the trusting relationship. But I, 
I'm not sure it's somatic dominance. And maybe it's also has to do with the teachers that they don't take advantage of that power. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's that, if it's that people want to be dominated somatically. I think it's so much more complex than that. I think like, like Maria said, I think it's in part the relationship with the teacher. I think it's perhaps a lack of experience with feeling and understanding how to get to a certain feeling yourself just mm-hmm. through exploration. Um, and then of course, you know, I think most people around, <laughs> around the world, everyone's overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed with, you know, what's going on. We're overwhelmed with our own personal responsibilities at home and our own, you know, fears and desires and all the rest of it. And so there is something nice about just being able to kind of just tune out a little bit, um, you know, and cause I've gotten on the mat before just on my own and just thought, Mm-mm. <laughs> I'm not, it's not now. <laughs> put on video or something and get started. Exactly. Usually you settle. I think it's when yep. you're, you're, when you're panicked, you're the, the Dan Siegel model of the brain. I'm holding up my hand. And when you flip your lid, the, 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 you put your thumb into your palm and you fold the fingers over and the thumb is the amygdala and the, and the wrist is the brainstem and the fingers are the cortex. And when you're triggered, your cortex goes offline, you flip your lid, he says, and you can't think. Mm. And it's, you got to have someone tell you what to do and kind of come back into your body, into that interoceptive thing. And then you can think. So that I think the challenge, and, and then I'll be quiet, but the challenge <laughs> is to, to get people settled and then to give them their head. Yeah. I don't know if you found that matter. What do you think? Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. And you know, when I say somatic dominance, I know it's been used in a negative with negative terminology, yeah. but I think that usually these trends, these patterns, these ways that we are together have a both a positive and a negative side. So I think what we're talking about is that with trust, with a teacher who is not is not trying to use their teaching to feed their own ego, at least mostly, because we probably all fall into that a little bit, but that we're not totally off balance with our getting our egos involved with our teaching, then like you said, in the very beginning, we do somatically dominate our students for their own good. Like we regulate them. This reminds me of a conversation I had on my podcast with Shelly Prosco. She was talking about that co-regulatory system where we can help each other regulate our nervous systems. And yeah, I agree with you that I think it's very skillful to start in the beginning. And when I train teachers, I tell them, you know, in the beginning, in the beginning of class, and this is something that we were taught in Anusara as well. Start with simple movements, mm. everybody moving together, simple breathing, lots of movement, but not changing the movement a lot. Like, you know, arm movements or these these um, almost hypnotic mo- movements of the body. And then once you've gotten everybody into a state of a little bit more regulation and more presence, then we start to offer the menu. Yeah. Yeah, that's at a time when people can can handle it more or perhaps are more um, more ready to make some mm-hmm. choices on their own. Yeah, you, you got that right, Maria. That's definitely been my experience, too. It's just start slow and then I'm ready to go off on my own and do something, you know, feel something. So. 
So have you been a, a professional yoga teacher this entire time or have there been other things that you've been doing as well? Well, I've been the parent of a child with autism <laughs> yeah. um, who's now 17. So that was the entire time. Yeah. And I had in the early years, I did some I did freelance web designing mm-hmm. and in let's say 2010 to 2012, I even worked for a corporation as a web project manager. And in 2012, right on the heels of Anusara really disbanding or re- reconfiguring, my mom died. And she had been sick for a few years. She had cancer for a few years, but it was a it was a huge reorganization personally of you know everything that I believed in, everything that I was doing with my life. And um, at that point in time, I did, I did shift into just teaching yoga. Um, But then in 2015, I had another child. And so that, you know, that kind of brought me down to part time for a few years again. And when I resurfaced, you know, I had done a bunch of business training during during that time between like say 2015 and 2018, um, I realized I didn't want to be a full-time studio yoga teacher. Mm. And that's when I started the podcast and started working with yoga teachers more as a coach and as a mentor and teaching them some of the business skills that I had learned that really opened my eyes to how little yoga teachers know and how ill-equipped we are Mm. to make our full living as yoga teachers because (laughs) we have to be, you know, we, we spend all our time and all our money on these yoga trainings, but we do not understand the marketplace. We do not understand business. We do not understand our numbers. And that really puts us at a disadvantage. So what I did was I actually had a project where I had a conversation with 100 yoga teachers. Mm -hmm. At the time I wasn't using video chat. I was just on the phone, but I was just listening and it was, it was such a beautiful, beautiful experience. It was so inspiring and enlivening for me to connect with people who had the similar worldview to me. And of course it was a variety of people, lots of different types of yoga teachers, but there's this, there's this common core, this common desire to share yoga and to share a yoga that's deeper than these postures that we see on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And that was the, that was the thread that I just kept coming back to over and over. It's like, there's not a lot of yoga teachers out there. Even you would not think so. If you look on Instagram or you look in advertising and you would think, okay, yoga teachers are all about asana. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to them, it's not true. Mm -hmm. Most of them want to teach deeper yoga and a lot of them don't know how. So one of the things I work with yoga teachers on is incorporating the philosophy of yoga into their classes. And then the other thing is the business of yoga, which seems like it might be a little bit incompatible or (laughs) odd, but what's really important to me is infusing principles and values into business that you cannot separate them. If you try to create a business and you learn business without that angle of it, then you're going to create a business that I think you're going to get burnt out on. And you're, you know, yoga is not a great, um, shall we say, uh, it's not the best product. If what you want to do is make money, then you should do something else. You can make money teaching yoga if you know how to do it. But 
that's not the first place you go if what you want is money, right? The reason that we start yoga businesses is that we have a passion for it. We want to serve, and this is something that has helped us. It's made a huge impact on our lives, and we want to share that. We want to spread that along. But if we don't know how, if we don't have those tools, then we find ourselves spinning our wheels and getting taken advantage of and just really a lot of times questioning, like, should I be doing this? Should I really be doing this? But when you learn business, if you just take that kind of separately and you don't infuse your values and your principles into the very fabric of your business, it's not going to work either because of that, the reason that you started it in the first place. If you forget the reason and you just start trying to make money, Mm-hmm. then you're going to you're going to you're going to lose respect for yourself ultimately really mm-hmm. so that's what i teach and it to me in my experience it's completely intertwined mm-hmm. i'm interested <laughs> there's so much in there holy moly what Maria? how do you teach that how do you how do you do that like teach people to apply for instance the philosophy Well, we start with values Mm -hmm. and we start, so a big part of yoga is self-awareness and awareness of our thoughts and the reactive patterns that come up in our lives. And when when we have reactive patterns, they're going to come up in our business 100%. And if you imagine that your business is separate from how you live your life and your yoga practice and all of that then what you're going to do is you're going to use the same reactive strategies that keep you stuck in your life. They're going to show up in your business and keep you stuck in your business. So we talk about figuring out what your dominant emotions are that come up that keep you stuck. We talk about what your stories are that are in relationship to those emotions. And we talk about what new stories and new patterns you can create to keep moving. And, you know, when I talk about the values, that is what you have to keep front and center so that every time you make a decision that you run it through, you filter it through those values. Mm. And that way you can create a business that you feel really good about. And that is instrumental. Is it going to continue your process of healing and growing as a human? Right. Why? Why would we want a business? I mean, this is what this is what we started teaching yoga to get away from. Right. Going into the office and punching the clock and making money for somebody else. And then that's compartmentalized. Then we go home and we live our lives. Right. That's not why we became yoga teachers. We became yoga teachers because we wanted our vocation and what we do in the world to mean something. And so that has to be infused into what you how you think about your business overall. Mm. I just kind of going cycling back a little bit because and I've got like all these little pins I'm putting in all these amazing things you're sharing with us. I you mentioned that you had taught you had conversations with a hundred yoga teachers. How Mm. how did that happen? And and you mentioned just a little bit of what came out of that. But I'm interested in hearing more about what came out of that and what you know what you really learned from all of that. Yeah. So are you asking how I thought to do it or the actual nuts and bolts of how I did it? Actually, all of it. How did you, how did you, I think it's a fantastic undertaking, particularly given that it it doesn't sound like that was something that happened 
in the it happened perhaps before people were that accessible via social media and all the rest of it. I don't really know, but I, it was I, in it was in 2018. Okay, so two yeah. years ago. Okay. Yeah, was- and I did it because I was I took a business course which with one of my mentors, Rachel Cook. You may have heard of her. She's okay. used to be the Yogipreneur, and now she's rebranded as Rachel Cook, and she has um her her brand is all about like being the CEO of your business. Mm-hmm. And I took her course and that was in her course. She said have 100 well she said have 10 conversations or what I really want you to do is have 100. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm doing this. Like I'm not I'm I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump in and I'll have to rewind a little bit to kind of help you understand why how how I made it happen at a nuts and bolts level. Um, when my younger daughter was about six months old, I, there's, there's a lot of just, you know, serendipity in my story. Mm. And I think everybody has that, but it's just so fun to, to look back on your life and see these moments Mm -hmm. of serendipity. So on a Facebook group, a local Facebook group for my, for my area, a woman posted saying something like, um, a high level, I've, I've been high level in business, but my personal life's a mess. I want to offer some business coaching very affordably. Just reach out to me and let me know. And I was like, well, okay, I'll try it, right? <laughs> Just like I know, I, I know my stuff on a business level, but I can't commit to anything. And I was like, okay. So I had a few sessions with her. Yeah. And she told me I had to choose a niche. She uh-huh. really pushed me on it. And so I chose yoga teachers. And she told me to create a lead magnet. Mm-hmm. So this is like even before I took the course with Rachel, right? So I reached out to one of the teachers that I was mentoring at the time, because I was doing some of that. And I asked her, I said, what would you like as a lead magnet? What would you, what would get you to sign up for my newsletter? And years before, like probably in like 2008 or 2009, I had created this list of 100 yoga class themes, and it was just living there. You remember it? (laughs) I remember it. I found it online, and I remember using it. (laughs) It was living on my website, and so this this woman said, well, you know, how about that list of 100 yoga class themes? She's like, I'd totally give you my email address for that, and I was like, okay, sounds good. And I went to go look at it, and what I needed to do was pull the list off my website, put it in a PDF, and then put it behind uh, an email sign-up, right? And as I started to look at it, I was like, wow, this is like the number one landing page for my website already. Like, people are finding this list. And I had all these comments on there saying, oh, my God, I love this list. It was so helpful for me. You know, like all these testimonials already. And so I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. So I put all that together and then I got completely distracted by building a house. So I just basically did nothing with my email list. And over the course of the almost two years that it took for our house to be built and to recover from that process, because it was intense, I got about 2000 people signed up on my email list. Wow. So when I went back to take this course, this business course, I had a list of 2000 yoga teachers to draw from. And that's, you know, other than my personal network, that's where most of those hundred came from. And then it was about a third of the way through that 
project that I was like, I don't want to stop having conversations with yoga teachers. I want to keep this going. I'm going to start a podcast. And then the people who had participated in the conversations Mm -hmm. became my first podcast listeners. And a lot of them ended up becoming my first clients. Like even years and years later, Mm -hmm. I'll have people signing up to work with me saying, you know, I was one of your first 100 conversations project. And I'm like, wow, that's so amazing. You made this happen. (laughs) Wow. And so you, you had mentioned that in the conversation that, or in that, in the, the midst of all those conversations, you were able to determine that, you know, most people really wanted to be sort of teaching deeper yoga. And what else did you learn, even just from a um, almost like a statistical point of view, like what else did you learn about who these people are and, you know, perhaps even how they're how they were using yoga? Well, and I want to point out, too, that what I said about them wanting to teach deeper yoga, there is a little bit of a, a statistical skew here because most of them signed up for that yoga class themes download so there you know but that's who I want it I mean that's perfect because I do want to attract people who want to teach deeper yoga I am bored by asana for the sake of asana you know like that was maybe interesting back in 2002 (laughs) for me but these days, you know, I mean, and I love the body and I love being in a body and challenging my body and learning about my body, but really the brain is what's interesting (laughs) to me when it comes to yoga and when it comes to being a human. And so, so yeah, so that's one of the things I learned. I learned that they need business training. I know I learned that a lot of them are really struggling with how to attract people, how to create offerings, how to think about their teaching as a business. I also learned that there's a good number, and these are not the people that I work with because this is just, you'll you'll understand why, but there's a good number of people who are teaching yoga as a second, as like a retirement hobby, basically. So there was a good number of people I talked to who were like, I don't care if I ever make a dime teaching yoga, I'm retired and this is what I wanna do with my time. So I was like, well, that's cool. Um, And I, I could work with them as far as the, incorporating philosophy into their classes for sure. Um, but not on the business level because they, they don't care. Yeah. Wow. And so over the course of all of this, you've mentioned a lot of things that have happened in your life. So a couple of kids and a house and all the rest of it. How, how, how has all of that taught you? Well, firstly, how did you, how did your yoga support you through that? And then also how, what has that kind of all of that stuff taught you about the evolution of your own yoga and your own practice? So kind of this, I'm not doing a, a very good job of explaining it, but I kind of mean like, what is yoga given and what have you gotten? <laughs> well, I think that you are kind of explaining it perfectly because that's the main insight is that there there is no separation. Yeah. You know, the practice is in service of the rest. What's the point of the yoga practice if you don't ever take it into the rest of your life? Yeah. And so the practice is just, to me, it's a, like specifically meditation time. It's a place to observe your mind where there isn't as much outside stimulus. Mm. So it's the pratyahara almost that's important in that practice time. 
And then the key is, <laughs> what do you do? How can you observe your thoughts, your reactions in the midst of the rest of your day? And it's so interesting because, you know, at the same time, being a mom teaches you so much about mm. yourself and your reactions and <laughs> your tendencies. Okay. So I don't see that as separate and I don't see you know, I don't see the asana practice or even the meditation practice as being more valuable than the practice of being a mom. <laughs> mm -hmm. They feed each other or, yeah. well, yeah. Not, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they do. They do. Because even, you know, like even when you sit down to meditate, knowing that you have these little people or not so little people depending on you, it really like is an invitation to be present. Mm. So they do. They feed each other. Mm. Yeah, definitely get that. So you, Maria, did you, is there something? No, I'm loving it. I just love how, how grounded in your life it is and how it evolves with you. And I, I think, has it changed physically? I mean, I found that my practice has become more subtle as I've progressed, but um, it sounds like you've been incorporating ph philosophy. I feel like I went from this physical, the gross to this more subtle, but it sounds like you've been incorporating that earlier. But also as your body changes and as your energy levels change, not that it sounds like you're lacking energy levels by <laughs> the imagination. Oh then, gosh, my practice has tra changed tremendously. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and one more little thing is like now in this funny stage of all this going in and kind of weirdness, especially in the U.S., um, how has that, has that, have you felt a palpable change in your practice? Mm. Okay, so I'll take the questions kind of yeah, separately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was, I, I came to yoga on the more hypermobile side mm. and maybe five or so years into teaching, I recognized that I was going to make a much more positive impact on my body by focusing on strength than focusing on more and more and more flexibility. So I started doing CrossFit and weightlifting and is a part of that. I also had asthma as a child. So I had some weakness in the lungs that the cardiovascular component of CrossFit was really positive for. So when that happened, when I started doing CrossFit, CrossFit's very intense, you guys, I'm sure know that. Mm -hmm. um, but it was this invitation for me to really shift my yoga practice into something more restorative and rejuvenative. So it stopped being my exercise. Like I really stopped. There was just no appeal to have more exercise when your body's like super sore from something else, right? So that was one of the big shifts that happened for me. And as far as recently, um, I'm, I can't, I haven't been able to do CrossFit, right? Mm. So I would say that my practice has actually gotten a little bit more vigorous during quarantine. I also have been, I have always liked to walk, but since quarantine, I have been a, every single day I'm going on a walk first thing in the morning. And now I've started incorporating some running into that as well. Now, just like asana can sometimes be yoga and can sometimes really just be exercise, it's the same for my walk slash run, right? There are times where I am like really present and I am really 
in the moment as I'm walking. And there are other times where the movement of my body is just a preparation for to set me up to have a better day, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, definitely like first thing in the morning when I get up, I drink coffee and I'm like telling, trying to tell myself, or there's a part of me trying to tell myself, you don't need to, you don't need to walk today. <laughs> you don't need to, you don't need to do it. And yeah. I'm like, you know, I have been around long enough so that there's also a, little bit of a stricter side of me that says, no, you really do. You know, you're going to feel like 50 times better when just even 10 minutes into your walk. So the walk has been huge. It has been incredibly restorative, rejuvenative. Like I said, it sets me up for my day. And you know, ideally it also becomes a yoga practice, a practice of being present. And I'm out. I'm not exactly in nature, although there are some nature components. I live near the river. And so sometimes I walk down by the river and, um, yeah, so that's kind of been the, the shift during quarantine is it's my asana practice has gotten a bit more vigorous. Um, and my walking and running has been really important. I also will stop at a certain point during my walk and, and meditate. And that's often by the river. Mm. Nice. I love that evolution from flexibility to then going, wait a second, I need strength to then, wait a second, do I really want to use my yoga to build the strength and the stability? Or maybe I want to do some weights or exercise or whatever it is. And then what I love about it is that it does um, separate. Yoga doesn't have to be this stressful thing anymore. Uh, it becomes really nourishing and it can become, it's interesting that it's okay now to make it vigorous, but it, um, sometimes you're hesitant to let that like back in, just let's mm. somewhere else and then let that be a really nourishing, rejuvenative place. It's a beautiful description of your evolution. One and, of the things that's also, oh, ha- oh, what was that? Nothing. I'm interrupting, but I like that it came <laughs> back as well. It's not just a linear evolution. It's, it's cyclical. Mm. Uh, yeah. Most things are, I think. One of the things that's happened in the last couple of years has is that it's become more okay and acceptable to bring things like resistance bands and weights into your yoga practice. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of an interesting pendulum swing of where I went to, you know, lifting weights, where I really tried for a while to separate my yoga practice from my exercise. And now it blends a bit more and I do always have a restorative component at the end because it's just so lovely. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? I'm finding myself wondering, especially having students and, um, and clients who are, um, who are parents of children with autism I'm finding myself wondering how your yoga has informed your mothering around that and just your ability to um, to manage yourself and to manage kind of the day-to-day requirements of that. Well, it's definitely been helpful. My daughter actually didn't get diagnosed till she was 14. So for most of this time, I was parenting a special needs child, but I didn't have any of the support networks that you would normally have. Yeah. And so that was really tough. And it was, (laughs) it was really interesting to get that diagnosis and to like reframe that whole childhood of the level of energy that it took to be present for her. Mm 
Mm. And, you know, it, again, it's hard, it, like, it's hard for me to separate the two, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just think I just grew up and I'm glad I had yoga as a tool. And I'm glad I had parenting as a tool because honestly, like, I don't really like who I was too much when I was a teenager and in my twenties, you know, like so self-absorbed and, um, oh, well, let me put it this way too. Actually, let me add this angle is that when my daughter was diagnosed with autism, I recognize that the reason that she wasn't diagnosed earlier is I missed the signs because I have a lot of those same traits and tendencies. So when I looked at her and her challenges, I just saw myself, right. Mm -hmm. And you, you just don't, you can't see yourself clearly, right? So the the diagnosis of Asperger's or high-functioning autism wasn't around when I was her age, when I was a kid. That wasn't part of our lexicon. And so there, there wouldn't be any reason for me to, to have that insight. But somebody who didn't have those same traits and tendencies probably would have recognized them in her sooner and gotten help. And so that was, you know, to me, yoga is a big part of yoga is about self-awareness. And so in a way like that, that lens or that opportunity to have this child be my mirror, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was like this huge act of yoga. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's hard for me to pick out how much of my yoga practice informed me, my parenting, and how much I just learned by being a parent, right? Because they happened at the same time, so I don't know. But I do know that I had some very negative samskaras, like my thought patterns were were really the, the way that I viewed the world and the way that I was taught to view the world in my upbringing was not leading me to happiness was not um not a positive helpful frame for for seeing the world and so being in the yoga community and hearing kind of the yoga philosophy it just gave me this new perspective and one of the biggest things it gave me was the understanding that i could choose mm-hmm. that i was empowered to decide what thought patterns i wanted running through my brain mm-hmm. and to recognize, too, to discern, to say, you know what, these ones are not serving me. I'm mm-hmm. going to leave them behind and I'm going to focus here and I'm going to develop these skills and I'm going to develop these samskaras, these new samskaras. Mm-hmm. So that that to me was the biggest, was just the framing of the world and, and my understanding that my thoughts are my choice. I get to choose my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And how are you if at all, how are you sharing that or conveying that with her or with, you know, with your children in general? Every day throughout every day, we have conversations, you know, and, and the insight, the level of insight, the level of self-awareness that she has is so light years beyond what I had at that age. So even when she struggles, I feel hope because I see, you know, her talking about things and and saying things that I could never have seen or understood at her age. So, you know, mostly it's within the context of conversations and I try to let it be at her instigation. So she brings up a topic of conversation. I try to listen. I wait for her to ask me (laughs) a question. You know, I try not to 
preach. I try not to have an agenda with her. I try to really listen. And, but I have noticed she pays attention. So that's my older one. And my little one, oh my God, she's just my polar opposite. And she's a little, like, she's a little yogi and she just is amazing. She's like a little fairy in our lives. So in, in my house, it's my husband, my older daughter, and my younger daughter, who's four and a half. Mm-hmm. And we, like, she is the center of our world. <laughs> and, like, we just love having her because, do you guys, are, do you have any, like, four and a half or five-year-olds in your life? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're so incredible. <laughs> they just, anything is possible for them. And, mm-hmm. and they're just so bright. And, well, I think when they're securely attached and non-traumatized, they're just incredible. And so um, having her in my life is just having this source to, to joy, this access to joy and lightheartedness and honesty, you know, even it's not like she's joyful all the time, but she's, she lives in a, in a world where she's allowed to cry and express her pain and express her sorrow. And people are going to hold space for her and not try to fix her and not try to tell her not to feel that way. So my husband and I talk about how parenting is an opportunity for us to heal whatever patterns were not given to us, whatever, you know, whatever uh, resources were not given to us, whatever space was not held for us, we get to heal that as we parent. Mm. That's so, so nice. <laughs> isn't it? It's, it's so interesting. It, and it's interesting that you've come to that too, because I've, and I'm not quite sure how to like form this into any kind of a question, perhaps more than just a, uh, an observation that I've noticed parents and I've definitely had the feeling myself um, actively engaging in what they think is righting the wrongs of their own childhood, but, or, and just what you've described in terms of not being entirely sure about how your yoga impacted your parenting. It always comes back to us. It always comes back to how we've grown is just the reflection. Like that is the, that is the, um, the biggest lesson that we can teach our children is changing and understanding ourselves and understanding our relationship to the world. Um, and it's, and it's, it's active, but it's not active in the same way. If you know what I mean, it's not active in terms of trying to teach somebody something. It's more active in terms of just becoming something. Being the example. Yeah. Just being. Do, doing your work to be able to hold that space. I love that you said, I want to listen without an agenda, which as a parent is incredibly difficult because you're, you're constantly going, you know, these are all the things that could happen. And, you know. But to they feel it in you when you can be present. Yeah. You can say, and you hold that hope. I just loved that, that there's that. And we do it as yoga teachers too. We we always have that. We see the, recognize the Buddha nature or the essential, open, loving, wise heart of our students. Mm. So it's there and we know they'll come to it. And in a way we're holding that kind of light and that mirror for them. And that's the best way we can do it for ourselves. It's just beautiful language you just used to describe it. Thank you. So I wanted to know, does your daughter do yoga? Does she does she kind of cross her hands and go, no, or um, the older one or the younger one? Yeah, the old. Well, the younger one would probably do anything. It sounds like she's just but the older one, I think teenagers can be resistant. Absolutely not. She would no way she wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. (laughs) 
Yeah, mine didn't either, but it's interesting. They both now in their 20s do. Mm. And they sort of sneakily ask things, and I pretend, I mean, I'm, I am I can't pretend not to be pleased, but like, <laughs> I'd love to help you with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she eventually did, but she does aerial arts, so aerial silks, uh-huh. hasn't in two and a half months, unfortunately, but, you know, to me, there's, at least on a physical level, there's some crossover there, and the conversation we have is you just need to be doing something physical. Mm. I don't, I don't care what it is, but you do need to move your body because if you don't move your body, you get stagnant and it just, it, it doesn't allow you to even know who you really are if you never move your body. Mm. Yeah, that is true. That is true, isn't it? Don't you think? I do. Yeah, I do. I think it's, and, and when you say move your body, I mean, I think about it in terms of like moving your physical body from an exercise point of view and even just being kind of out in the world, mm. you know, all of that is just fodder for learning yourself really, isn't it? Well, mm-hmm. and I think it's a shame when people aren't taught, you're co-regulating, but you're kind of teaching how to self-regulate. I mean, I love your conversation with yourself in the morning before the walk where you could try and talk yourself out of it. And then you're like, we know that that doesn't go well for us. It's like, <laughs> And I think to pass on to your kids that you feel much better when you've moved your body. Mm-hmm. So just move your body helps because if we don't teach people how to self-regulate, they're lost in the world, regardless of whether it's yoga. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And so I have so many more questions about the podcast and about the, yeah. and about the group. So I'm assuming that the podcast came first or did the how did that work? Did those things come? Because now you've got this this growing community of yoga teachers, and yeah. So talk to us a little bit about how that how that came around. You know, I don't I don't exactly remember the timing of the group versus the podcast because I think I started the group probably similar time, and I started just with my personal network, which was already like 200 yoga teachers. I was able to add 200 yoga teachers right from the start. And I started the podcast and I started engaging with the group. And at a certain point, the Facebook algorithm decided that the group was interesting Mm -hmm. and started to basically advertise for me. Mm -hmm. So initially, I had thought that a lot of the group members or most of the group members would be podcast listeners. Mm -hmm. But that hasn't necessarily ended up being the case. Um, because Facebook, it, it ends up being the other way around. Like the Facebook group right now is my number one source for exposing new people to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. And so when people ask to join, I, t- I tell them about the podcast mm-hmm. and I invite them to listen to it. I don't know, like, I'm sure not all of them do, but a lot of times when in that question, I, you know, I ask them, have you listened to the podcast? And I get a lot of uh, answers that say something like, I didn't know there was a podcast. I'll look for it now. <laughs> so does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I'm interested in groups like like because I'm a, I'm a bit of a dinosaur at it. Like, what are you what are you doing in the group or what was your idea was to take to kind of make a family out of these 200 people that you and, and get conversations going? 
Yeah. And my idea was to allow the podcast listeners, people who listen to the podcast to then contribute their thoughts on the topic, right? That they would listen to an episode and then we could continue the conversation in the group. Now, here's the funny thing that rarely happens. Like <laughs> rarely do we, does anybody want to discuss the podcast in the group, but they bring lots of other topics. I get ideas for podcasts. And then a lot of times people will ask questions that I've answered in the podcast and I can just share the podcast with them at that time. So it's symbiotic. It's not as intimate as I intended. So what I did this year, actually, this is one of the things I did during the pandemic is I started a patron program for the podcast to take the people who were most invested and let them raise their hands by offering to contribute as little as $5 a month so that I could then kind of identify the people who were most engaged and create content just for them. So that's been really fun. That's been really rewarding. And I've been doing at least one workshop per month for the podcast patrons. Wow. Content. Like what kind what does, what do you get if you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, here's some of the workshops that I've taught. How to teach philosophy in an asana class was one workshop. I've got a workshop coming up about how to teach online privates, and I've got a guest teacher helping me with that. I've got a guest teacher coming in to help me do a workshop on boundaries. I've got one coming in to help me with money mindset. I've got I've done a collaboration with Shannon Crow and Amanda Kingsmith and Amanda McKinney. They're my uh, mastermind buddies, so we have a group, kind of a formal group where we support each other. And we did one on how to pitch podcasts because we get a lot of questions about that. And we also get a lot of pitches for people who want to be on our podcast. If you guys don't get that yet, you will. And some of them are very poorly done. So we thought we would put together a training about it. And then we also are doing a sort of meta training on how to create a mastermind group. So that's, there's some examples of what I've been offering to the members of the patron program. That's terrific. Is a mastermind group something you thought of, or is this something, again, is that something that everybody does? And, and, uh, cause I remember out, she, Shannon, she, she talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Out in the business world, it's a well-known concept. Yeah. <laughs> and there's two types of masterminds. There's peer masterminds and paid masterminds okay. and paid masterminds are often very, very pricey. Mm. And what happens is that they, you know, you will put people kind of at a similar level of revenue together. And then it really has, you know, so the idea, I guess, is that your investment is going to be paid off. I'm a little skeptical about these paid masterminds. I've heard good things from some people, but I'm sure that there's other people who just don't talk about it, who didn't have such a great experience. Um, but we're do we do a peer mastermind. So a peer mastermind is one where you create it together. There's no facilitator mm-hmm. and you just co-create it. And that's what we're doing. And the nice thing about that is that you don't have to invest any money. The challenging thing is it can be harder to find committed people. Cause I've done others. I've tried it before and struggled with everybody being equally committed. That's part of why we have a really small group, just four of us. And we lucked out that all four of us are really committed and really have a lot of integrity and show up and do what we say we're going to do. That to me is the number one 
ingredient that you want from your mastermind members. You do not want people who are excited at the beginning and then don't follow through. Mm. Yeah, which can happen a lot. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys are interested, though, we're doing a whole training on June 25th from 2 to 3. Um, we'll, we will break it down. We will break down every every detail of how we put this um, this group together and how we run it. That sounds fascinating. It's also a very Australia-friendly time to be doing it, yeah. which is nice. <laughs> two to three? Really? It's two to three? Is that early? In the, what time is it now? Maybe it's not. <laughs> no, I think it's very unfriendly to Australia. Okay. This is You guys would probably have to catch the replay. It's five now. Okay. So it would be like four in the morning for you or something. <laughs> Sorry. I, I was, you know, I like, I had that thought as two to three, like left my mouth. I was like, oops, <laughs> I don't think that they could come to it live, but oh well. We're getting used to that. Aren't we Maria? We are. And I love that you team up with Shannon a lot to do things together, like on each of your podcasts, there's so much collaboration and community in what both of you guys are creating. I think it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's the four of us, all four of us. So Amanda Kingsmith and Amanda McKinney, they also have podcasts and oh. they also have Facebook groups and we all four collaborate a lot. And it's mm. really, really amazing. We have we use Voxer mm -hmm. and we communicate at least multiple times a week. If something intense is going on, it'll be multiple times a day and we're just there for each other. And it's it's been incredible. It's been, you know with the pandemic and everybody's social distancing to me and you kind of asked this earlier like how have things changed for you well i was already home a lot the big difference for me is having my kids home all the time that's been intense mm. but i don't feel more disconnected because the people i was already connected to was virtually anyway like i wasn't seeing my in-person friends very much anyway mm. that's interesting it's interesting i've i've Okay, so I've got a couple of things, and I may as well just go off of what you've just said, is I am wondering, given that we've sort of moved through, or we're, and we haven't moved through it all the way yet, but we're on our way through this pandemic, and all of the things that it has taught us about, uh, about specifically about our yoga and about this idea of connecting with each other, I'm like this future thinking person. I'm constantly thinking, what's next? How's this going to, I don't know how yogic that is, but how, what's, you know, how's this going to, how's this going to evolve? And I would love to hear your insights about where you think the impacts that you think this has had on, on yoga or on the practice of yoga. I don't think, and the business of yoga, because I don't think necessarily yoga itself has changed, but, um, and where you actually think we're going as an industry and perhaps even, I don't know, perhaps even practice. Wow. <laughs> that is such a big, great question. Well, obviously, we have brought our practice home. Yeah. So that is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, that is something that I think a lot of yoga teachers have been rooting for for a long time. Bring your practice home, bring your practice home. So I think that's really cool. We've also brought it online, which is a different it's it's both good and bad right it has its different angles I think that as an industry we're we're about to go through a really tough time with a lot of yoga studios closing which means a lot of yoga teachers are going to be unemployed 
which means that this sense of, oh my God, there's not enough space for me, that story is going to be magnified. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, the competition, oh, the saturation, that story is going to be magnified. I do think and hope that private yoga is going to rise in popularity. Mm. That because one of the big stories or market forces has been that people don't want to pay for privates. Mm. But in this time where social isolation is something that you can pay for if you have the money, I think that people, this is going to start to become a bigger thing is private sessions because you can do them perhaps outdoors in good weather with social distancing or by doing them even indoors, you're reducing your exposure level by a massive factor just by, you know, having only two people in the room versus even 10, right? (laughs) That's a big difference. So my, yeah, I, I have a hunch that private yoga is going to get bigger, get more popular, become more normalized. And that a lot of the people who were teaching yoga who probably were going to fall off and stop teaching anyway are going to stop teaching more quickly. Mm. And, but at the same time, a lot more people are going to keep bringing their, their teaching online and learn how to adapt to that structure and to be their own boss, because that's what I teach yoga teachers. There are very few situations for a yoga teacher where you can be part of a bigger organization or a studio and make a living that's enough to even support one person. So, but if you understand business a little bit and you run your own programs, the math starts to look so much better really, really fast mm. as far as, you know, your, in, your time investment and what you can make back for that. So I think that's going to continue to rise in popularity as well. Mm. Mm. I've also, oh, sorry, go ahead, Maria. I'll let well, you continue from that, but I might, I might be sidetracking. I think given even what's happening with, um, with Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, can you feel... Because I know you talked about inclusivity and accessibility, and I, I agree with you with the private thing, but I also am conscious that that's, that's available only to a certain privileged portion of the population. And I wonder, maybe even just in your own envisionment of, of how you're going to adapt to that new world or even adapt your coaching and businessing business awareness for teachers to that new world because a lot of us need to educate ourselves and move into a different future yeah well I think there's two separate questions there I think the question of equity and how we adapt to this developing conversation around equity is one question and that but the question around only a certain portion of the population can afford private yoga that's always been there And doing online private yoga can actually make it a bit more accessible for people. Mm. So I don't think that, you know, I don't think that that's going to disappear. And there we all have we have this wide range of privileges and abilities and and resources. So you have all the way from, you know, the people in 
India who are at the lowest part of the caste system or the people in Africa who are starving Mm -hmm. or, you know, other places in the world, right, that are third world countries. And then you have coming into the West, you have the people who are disenfranchised and really working to stay their head, keep their head above water. And then but but from there to the billionaires, you have a huge range. Mm -hmm. So there are people who have been able to, quote unquote, afford private yoga this whole time, but it wasn't a priority for them. That will shift, I think. Because we all make choices about where we spend our money. So some people having the latest gadget is important. Some people, it's our health and well-being that that's where we spend our money. We are willing to pay more for organic food. Some people, it's beauty and and their appearance, right? So we all, our values are going to inform where we put our money. So yes, granted that with private yoga, there there needs to be some resources. But, you know, I know a guy here in Asheville who did not have a car, but had a membership to an expensive yoga studio Mm -hmm. because that was his priority. And so he walked everywhere. He did not choose to pay for a car. He chose to pay for a membership at a nice yoga studio. Um, So that's just an example of how we do shift our resources based on our, on our values. So setting that aside, because that's, that's how it's been and it's going to continue to be that way. Um, what we have the potential to really shift now is this conversation around equity. And with the conversation around equity, it has to be sustainable, right? So we cannot give private yoga lessons to every single person who might benefit from them. That's just not possible. So private yoga lessons are a premium product, we could say, and there are ways to use, let's say, nonprofit money to shift resources and that's great and that's a that's a wonderful focus for some people who choose to make that their focus but what we really are looking at i think is infusing a new understanding of equity into our organizations on a structural level and figuring out how to make our leveraged offerings accessible right mm-hmm. so that we're not taking advantage of anybody that we're that we're giving opportunity where it's possible to give opportunity mm-hmm. versus you know you can like let's say with the example of private yoga if you if one were to say okay I'm gonna I really want private yoga to be accessible so I'm only gonna charge ten dollars per private yoga class there's only so many people you can help there's so only so many hours in the day mm-hmm. whereas if we're offering digital classes if we're offering pre-recorded classes in those situations we can really be a lot more flexible in in our pricing and i think scholarships are very important and i think that those will you know it, with to your question about how are things going to change um this is not with covid but with the black lives matter conversation i do think that equity scholarships are going to become way more prevalent and this is an awesome thing I think that we will learn I think that we will make the priority like our values are shifting and we're going to now have the priority to educate ourselves about how to do that because I don't know about you guys but I've had times when I thought oh I want to offer more scholarships that sounds complicated I'll do it later right Mm -hmm. 
And so <laughs> this, you know, this conversation is a wake up call of no, you don't do it later. You can't do it later. You need to you need to look at the moments when you have the opportunity to make an impact and mm. take those moments and mm. don't shunt them off until later. Mm. Oh, yeah. you just put a fire under me. I know. <laughs> I know. OK, so it is a way to offer something. If you've got something going, then having a place or two in there that are supported. Mm. It, it, it's it's adding without taking away and it's and it's it's just a matter of organizing it yeah yeah, yeah that's fantastic I think um it, just to I guess we're kind of starting to ramp it up a little or ramp it down I suppose a little bit mm-hmm. um I have a question and I would love to hear your thoughts about this um I feel like you know being this future thinking person I feel like we as a um, species, perhaps, are, we're in for a lot of really big changes in the next maybe decade, maybe, you know, 20 years, um, a lot of changes that will impact how we see and how we know ourselves. So for just for a simple example is things like, and I've talked about this before, um, you know, what's happening in in the workplace, in industry, and this idea that um, a lot of things are being, um, um, the word's not coming to me, but a lot of things are being, um, robots are kind of taking over certain jobs, and there's and there's even the idea that there will be even more of that at the highest and lowest levels, you know, doctors and lawyers, and a lot of that stuff will be automated um, because it makes sense. Um, you know, that that kind of thing happening all the way to the stuff we're talking about now with the Black Lives Matter. And we're feeling this tension that only means change. And it's painful now, but I think it's going to be more far more painful before we're through. Whenever things like this happen, it feels like and I know this only just from my own experiences of in small ways of this throughout my life where something challenges who you know yourself to be. Um, we reach out, we need something, we need something to steady us, to, to help us, you know, I don't know, settle really. And so I feel like yoga is really poised to play a huge role in that. And I kind of wonder what your thoughts are about that, whether you think that's true or not. But then if it is true, what is the opportunity for yoga teachers and perhaps even just for the yoga industry, we have our own little infighting and all kinds of crazy things that are happening. But what is the, you know, what is the potential for the industry in order to be able to truly do what we, we're supposed to be doing or what we think we're doing, which is to support the pain that's happening now and that will just continue? I think that what we need to do is our own practice. Mm and address our own pain. Because when we have this infighting, especially when it's being done in a way that's less than skillful, yeah. it's a manifestation of us, of our own pain, our own trauma, and our own seeking for clarity, simplicity, and a solid ground. 
So to me, the practice gives me the ability to sit in uncertainty and Mm. to not, and gosh, by no means, you guys, am I living this perfectly, right? (laughs) I had a conversation just yesterday with a very well-meaning, lovely human being, and we were talking about equity, and I was realizing, like, there's, you know, there's so many white people who have, are just uneducated about the language that is being used in the topics. And so here's this really wonderful person, sincere, you know, bringing up great points. And I was like, I'm, I'm not being skillful here. Like I'm getting a little bit too riled up and he was fine. Like we went, there was no, there was no problem, but I recognized my own patterns as this conversation was happening where I was like, I need to listen more. I need to like, I need to listen more, not just yes to the teachers of equity and then also to the people that I'm engaging with and not just try to educate, not just try to like, hey, I'm going to educate you. I I can get more skillful at that. Mm-hmm. So I just want to like lay that, <laughs> lay that out there. But the idea and the potential for the practice is for us to be centered in discomfort, centered in uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And to live that the best we can, moment by moment, to get better at that. And when we can act from there, I think we have the potential for healing. And so then it doesn't matter if it's yoga in a commodified fashion, right, where the people we're interacting with are like, I'm doing yoga right now. You're my yoga teacher. Or if we're just humans who are using the tools of yoga to live more skillfully. Mm. That's what I think is the potential. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with the yoga industry. Mm. I believe it's going to go on because there's so many of us who've been impacted by it. And so there's so many who are inspired to share those lessons, those teachings. Mm. So I think it's going to keep going, but on a bigger level, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because what yoga is trying to address is universal And there are other lenses and other ways to address it. But the the important part is to practice. Mm. I love that. (laughs) I love that so much. Um, Because what I hear, and honestly, like, I'm always, even though I know, I'm always thinking, oh, there's got to be, there's got to be some complicated answer that I just don't necessarily have that I need to get to. And I love the way that you've just basically said, be the change, just, you know, and that's it. Be the change that you want to see in the world. Start with you. And be centered in your discomfort. Exactly. Just start with you. And that is just the ultimate, ultimate lesson. That's the ultimate um, message, I should say, of yoga, really. That's each of our dharma, right? Yeah, that's it. It's what we're here to do. Yeah. You managed to put it particularly well, though, Meadow. Thank you. No, you did. So thank you so much for reminding us of that. And thanks so much for this conversation. It's been brilliant. It's been really lovely to learn so much about you and where you've come from and what you offer. And um, yeah, and I look forward to, to sharing this out and having people learn more about you as well. Oh my gosh, you guys asked such great questions and I really look forward to having each of you share your wisdom and your thoughts on my podcast as well. Cool. 
That's exciting. Thanks again. We appreciate it. Thank you. There you are. Mado Hesselink. So much wisdom, so much heart. We loved talking with her. And following this conversation, we each had a chance to record individually with Mado for her podcast and to talk about the things that we're passionate about. So we'll share those when they come out. But do not wait until then to go and check out Mado's podcast. Even if you're not a yoga teacher, there are there's all kinds of wisdom in there about all things yoga. So there's lots of stuff to learn. And if you are a yoga teacher, then her podcast is a must listen. So Maria and I are super excited because we've got more fabulous conversations coming up. We feel like we've opened up a Pandora's box of goodness with starting this podcast. And it's it's giving us the chance to think about and to talk about and to share some big ideas and some very impactful small ideas too. So thanks again for your listening and for all the lovely feedback you've been sharing with us. Keep it coming and definitely let us know if you have any questions about the stuff we do or the stuff we're sharing. Until the next listen, namaste. Namaste.